Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmaty, brought to you by lisatarmaty.com. Well, hi, people, and welcome to Pushing the Limits. Before we get underway, uh, underway with today's guest, Dr. Paul Lawson, who I'm going to be introducing in a moment, I just want to remind you to Please, if you enjoy the show, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It really, really helps the show get exposure. Share it with your friends and your networks. Uh, We do a lot of amazing interviews with incredible people, and the value that you'll get out of the show is really, I think, of course, I'm slightly biased, uh, well worth the time investment. We'd also like to invite you to come and check us out on our website at lisatamati.com and check out our programs. Now, we have three flagship programs. We have our online run training system, Running Hot, um, and this is all about helping you develop your running skills and taking you to the next level. It's uh, how to run faster, how to run further and longer without burning out and without injuries. It's about whatever level that you're on, whether you're just starting out in your running career or whether you're doing your your 100 miler, uh, we'd love to help you there. The other program that we have is called Mindset You. Now, this is my online mental toughness and emotional resilience uh, e-course that you can do, which is all about developing that mental game, getting stronger in your mind, developing leadership qualities, um, helping you be more resilient to cope with all the stresses that life throws at you and how to reframe your mind so that you're stronger for whatever challenges you are facing. And then the third flagship program that we have is epigenetic testing. Now, epigenetics is a pretty new area of study. This is an incredible program that we're having huge results with with our, with our clients. And it's basically personalizing your health and fitness program to you and your genes and how they're expressing right now. So you'll get information from this about exactly what foods to eat and what ones to avoid, more importantly, uh, what times of the day you should be eating, how many meals a day you should be having, uh, what work environment you do well in, what social environment, what dominant hormones you have, what... Uh, body type you have, a whole lot of information that will really help mutate your training to the next level without being generic. And it's all specifically made for you and what you're doing right now. So check out all those programs at lisatarmaty.com. Now, today's show, I have Dr. Paul Lawson. Now, Dr. Paul is one of the world's leading scientists in HIT training. That's high-intensity interval training. He's a uh, uh, exercise physiologist, the manager of high performance sport in New Zealand at AUT, and is an adjunct professor of exercise physiology at AUT in Auckland. Uh, he resides at the nexus between research and applied sports science and physiology, and he's a real expert on HIT training, on HRV, on thermoregulation, and on using AI for training. So it's a really interesting interview. I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. Now, without further ado, over to the show. Well, hi everyone, Lisa Tamani here at Pushing the Limits. Once again, thank you so much for your loyalty and coming back to the show every week. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I'm super, super excited. I've been studying all yesterday and um, I've got one of the one of the world's leading experts in HIT science and exercise physiology on the show today, um, Dr. Paul Lawson. So thank you very much, Dr. Paul, for being on the show. Welcome to the Pushing the Limits. Oh, thank you for having me, Lisa. It's an honor to be here. Uh, it's got so exciting. Um, Dr. Paul's sitting in, in Canada, 
Um, but he also knows New Zealand very well because he was the uh, head of exercise physiology over here. Is that right, uh, Paul? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you were here for two Olympic cycles, training our yeah. Olympic athletes. That's right. Yeah, I was there for the Rio or uh, yeah, the London and the Rio Olympic cycles. And I was leading the physiology team at that point in time. So oh, wow. just great times, awesome memories, uh, yeah, based at the Millennium Institute on the North Shore in Auckland. And uh, no, just, I mean, um, you know, words have a hard time kind of describing just like what a great time in life that was for, for you know, my whole family and stuff. Uh, but and, and so much learning along the way as well that really you know, forms where I'm at today with hit science and some of the other stuff that we'll talk about. Yeah, because you're really at the cutting edge between, I mean, you're, you yourself are a, a very experienced Ironman triathlete. So you have experience actually as the, an athlete, as well as being, uh, you know, a professor in exercise physiology and having all this experience with Olympic athletes. Um, that must, you, you know, it's an, an incredible combination. Um, can you drop a few names of people that you perhaps work with in Auckland? That'd be interesting to to, to know. Um, well, I mean, you know, I don't know if I can really name drop too much. Like, it's <laughs> I, I, I think the, the cool thing about being a physiologist is that you you sit in the background and you work with people and you work with all the top coaches and the and the top athletes, but you really just need to yeah, you just kind of be the quiet person in the back. And I mean. You know, anyone in that, you, you can, just about anyone in that Olympic, those two Olympic cycles, you touch their programs either through the coaches or yeah. support staff. Um, it's a big, end, like it's, and again, I'm just one Out of small, small cog in the wheel of the high performance system. So it, it's just, and it's a whole, it's all about team and, um, and yeah, so, uh, but yeah, no, lots, lots of other Lots of big names, but they're not big on dropping. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, so, Dr. Paul, today I want to go into um, some of your areas of special G. So, a lot of my audience, not all of them, but a lot of my audience are runners, um, and many of them are ultra marathon runners. And I'd like to, uh, we're going to get into the science of, of HIT training, so high intensity interval training for those listening, um, and how this applies, and maybe something in, in the sport like, like marathon running or long distance running, and, and what sort of um, benefits we can gain from it. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about that? And then I would like to go later on to heart rate variability and um, uh, all of those sort of good things as well. Um, but let's start with HIT training. So, you've written the book on on hit training um uh what is the title um the science and application of hit training um can you tell us a little bit about why is hit training so important across so many sports yeah it's it's uh it's super important and but and when you look at a sport like ultra distance running you would think it maybe almost has no place but in fact your uh, listeners can get massive gains by implementing such type of training in their, in their programming. And, you know, well, let's maybe ask the question, why, why would someone who's you know, doing a, you know, hundred K ultra possibly benefit from hit? Mm. And the, I, I guess they're, they're really, I mean, we should also define what hit is like high intensity interval training specifically is defined as repeating bouts of high intensity exercise 
that are performed above your threshold. So that threshold kind of pace, you've got to be above that by, by default for it to be called HIIT. So not even moderate intensity sustained efforts. We're actually talking like above your, um, your threshold. In other words, it's, you can't sustain the exercise for too long before you have to stop and take a breath, uh, a break. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were to hold the exercise intensity up there, you would, you know, you'd, you'd ultimately okay. fatigue. <laughs> so if you're doing this repeatedly, you're actually, um, you're listening some effects in your physiology that you're not going to be getting from just your steady state exercise, your, mm -hmm. your long distance um, training. And some of these key ones are recruitment of your fast twitch muscle fibers. Mm -hmm. So you get to, you know, you get to build on those fast twitch muscle fibers. You yeah, you know, you have to use those by default to perform such exercise. And that creates the adaptations that you want, especially as an ultra distance runner. You want to create those faster twitch muscle fibers, make them more uh, slow twitch-like uh, or fatigue-resistant and oxidative. And you do that by, if, it's, if the stimulus is repeated, you wind up actually doing that. So, uh, And then the second one relates, so that's the peripheral component. The second component really relates to the central component, and I am like I'm pointing to my when I'm saying central component, I'm really pointing to my my heart, my uh, cardiac cardiac apparatus. So the ventri the ventricles of the heart wind up stretching out further, uh, um, filling up further, and by default they actually push more blood out. So your stroke volume winds up increasing, your cardiac output winds up increasing. So you, and, you, and, and you get that more so, the ventricular stretch, more so than if you were just going to do a steady state long exercise. So by supplementing HIIT exercise into an ultra distance program, not all, but just you know, intermittently um, in the week, your listeners will get um, you know, a real, real good bang for their buck. Yeah. No, I, I, as, an, as a young athlete, before I knew what the hell I was doing at all, I used to do just miles and miles of slow, long-distance running. I, ha I had no speed, genetically speaking. You know, I wasn't um, great, didn't have a great VO2 max or anything like that. And so for years, especially in ultra-distance, it was very much a sort of a pioneering time, if you like, back, you know, 20-something years ago, and we had no idea of anything, or at least not in my circles. Um, I'd just go out and just run long and slow because that's what we were going to be doing in the race, long and slow. Um, and, of course, I could get to the finish line of those races, but it wasn't the most efficient style of training as I now know. Um, but it was, it, it took me a bit of a stretch to get my head around why, you know, if I'm like all about the slow twitch fibers, I'm all about the endurance. What possible benefit can I do by recruiting my fast twitch fibers? And I'm sure I've got very few left. <laughs> I don't know if you can lose them all when you do endurance training. Um, uh, so how do the fast twitch fibers actually benefit you later in a, in a, in a longer race, for example? You know, why is it not just all about the slow twitch fibers? I get, I get the cardio output side of things. You're going to be fit of, you know, a higher v, VO2 max and, and so on. But from a, the slow twitch fibers, don't, aren't they the most important thing for an endurance runner? Yeah, they would definitely be the most important thing. However... Uh, the more fast of the larger motor units, the, you know, it's a bit of a continuum. It's, you know, it's hard to say whether uh, one is actually fast versus slow. So the key thing is actually the, um, like, like you want to be able to recruit these larger motor units. 
like the um, the fast twitch fibers. And when you do, they're more powerful, right? They're they're actually bigger. And these more these bigger and more powerful motor units, when they're contracting, they're going to be able to propel you a lot faster than your slower ones. So your pace will be able to be increased. Your pace on the hills will be a lot better. Um, you just have, you know, you'll just feel a lot more energy ultimately. So you'll be um, able to do, yeah, uh, sustain a higher pace even over the longer, the longer distances. Now, yeah. there are different types of HIT training. You have, you talk about the five HIT training weapons, I think you call them. Um, right. Let's look at that because, you know, um, you know, for the average person, HIT training just means, you know, perhaps sprinting and then backing off and sprinting again. What are some of the variables and some of those different types of HIT training that we can do? Yep. So the two key variables and the most influential ones are the intensity of the workbow and the duration of the workbow. Those are the two key ones, right? And then we can also look at the recovery um, interval as well, the intensity and the duration of the recovery interval. But let's just focus on, um, you know, if we break the intensities up, the, the first one we usually start with is our long interval. Mm-hmm. And this would be just above your, or, sorry, just at, pardon me, your VO2 max exercise intensity, if, if you know where that might, might be, right? So that might be sitting on a, you know, um, repeated 1K efforts on the track would be typically, if you're going to do, you know, uh, you know, six of those, that's typically around your VO2 max in, um, exercise intensity. Uh, or, you know, your, your sort of your 1,500 meter to 3,000 meter run pace on the track, all that kind of thing. So, yep. but yeah, so you're kind of repeating those for uh, two to five minutes, repeated, repeated bouts of that for two to five minutes at that pace. And that's typically your, that's considered your, um, a, a long interval. And that's the first of the five weapons that you referred to. Mm-hmm. The second weapon is the short interval. The short interval are done at just a marginally higher exercise intensity that we, than the long interval, you know, um, and these might be on the track might be like, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 meter repeats, something like that with equivalent usually equivalent rest um, intervals is recovery too. So done a little bit harder, not much, just a little bit more harder than the long interval with, uh, with, with, um, some sh- with equivalent short rests. So these are typically in the 10-second to 60-second range wow. of duration and 10 seconds to 60-second range of recovery. So we got, there's your long interval, there's your short interval, and then the, the other three, let's, um, so the next one is you, you referred to it. Do I sprint all out? Well, I, yeah, the next two are all out maximal sprints. Tabata-like intervals for the sprint interval training, those are long sprints or really short and sharp all out um, short sprints for repeated sprint interval, sprint interval training. So, um, sorry, repeated sprint training, R- RST. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is not used too much in the uh, the ultra distance context, I would think, but it's game based interval training. So yep. there's a good there's a good team sport base of, uh, of people in New Zealand with the, mm-hmm. the rugby and the the football and, and all those various different sports. And if, and if you're in the team sports, you're, you're definitely using game based interval training. They're typically they're like you're actually in, putting the ball into play as you do an interval. That's a team sport. And making so. it a bit more fun and very short, sort of sharp bursts of, of, of activity. Exactly. So, and the coach will actually do that, and they'll kind of almost trick their players into getting the, 
the, the work, uh, the work done. So um, yeah, they create, create fun, but it's also very sports specific too. So you can see why it's so successful in the team sport context. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you, you know, you said, you said trick them into it because you know, we, when I hear hit training, I hear, Oh no, <laughs> you know, like personally, when I have to go, I've got a hit session on today. It's like, Oh no, here we go. You know, um, how, how do you overcome that sort of a uh, uh, feeling of like, because, you know, should you be going to the point of, of absolute exhaustion and throwing up in the bucket somewhere during these sessions or is that going too far? Like, you know, um, and is another question too, is the HIIT training only in relation to running, like cardiovascular or a bike? Or can you do, say, a hit Tabata session and that counts as a hit training session? So it can be weights relate, related or is it only sort of cycling and um, running? Sure. So let's start with your first question there, yes, which sorry. was basically around the whole, you know, does it have to, do you have to go to the well? Does it have yeah. to be no pain, no gain? And that is a really important question that you asked, Lisa, because it's, it's absolutely not. So you shouldn't hit, hit training was never um, originally designed for that. It, um, you should like, it should not be no pain, no gain. Like that's not, you've, you've taken it to where it's too painful. Like that's, you've taken it too, too far and it's ultimately um, not, not very effective for, almost like a longevity type type sort of thing. So you, the key thing that we find with training, those who are most successful in training are those who back up session after session. Consistency of training is key. And if you are, if you're going to the well and you're killing yourself and you're not able to perform the next day because you, you train too hard in a hit session or, or whatever, you're, you're slowing down the progression compared to what you could actually had you wow. had you just a little bit back and then repeated that repeated some sort of a session the next day so that's the first question it's not about no pain no gain it's not about going to the well always leave a session like you could have done one more as the first rule um remind me of your second question the second question was is it only cardio um so is hit training only in relation to mm-hmm. say cycling and running is your yes. cardio you know activities um, yeah, as we well, like to say. Also, Tabata and or CrossFit, it can, you know, is, is those sort of things counted as HIT training? Yeah, bit of a debatable one. So um, from a purist standpoint, it's typically we're talking about a, you know, a, a mode of exercise like cycling, running, rowing, swimming, uh, whole body type exercise. However, there's lots of ways to skin the cat, as we love to say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot, uh, we see this being done throughout team sports and exercise, the fitness industries, CrossFit, etc. And, and the, you know, there's, there's certainly way, you know, loads of different ways to kind of do that. Uh, so I guess it's kind of yes and kind of no on, on that, yeah. that question. It just really depends what camp that you're sitting in. Yeah, uh, purist you are on the- <laughs> yeah. And also, like, I mean, it also depends probably on like what you're trying to. So if you're a time crunched individual that has to sit in an office and work most of the day, you know, you might like a cross fit type exercise where it's hitting lots of different things like circuit training. That might be all you can kind of get in in the day. And that might be really practical to your context. So super. If we're going to take the 
professional athlete, we, we don't recommend it because in the professional athlete context, typically we can just be a little bit more precise with the, with the training and we don't have to be supersetting everything and going back and forth. That will differ in, uh, that will differ across, uh, you know, beliefs and strategies of, uh, of different conditioners. That's just what Martin and I kind of feel with our, with what we, what it is that we do. So, um, so it's very specific to the sport art that you're doing. So you would train a soccer player different than you would train an ultra marathon runner or an iron man triathlete. Yeah. Um, what are some of the typical training? I mean, not only typical training sessions, probably a hard one to answer, but if, if you had an athlete coming to you, they're doing a hundred K event. Um, what type of, of interval trainings would you prescribe to them as a typical um, part of their week? Yeah, so if I was training an ultra uh, runner, I would probably I'd train them very similar to a you know a marathoner, and I would train them. You know, they would uh, they would have lots of elements of the long slow distance type training in it. Mm-hmm. There, but there would in terms of the hit sessions, there would likely be a short interval session in there, so like thirty on, thirty off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, set like in certain sets of thirty on, thirty off. Say like. Um, you know, seven thirty on, thirty off, and then followed by five minutes easy, and then repeat that. So you're actually eliciting a VO2 response, and um, you're again recruiting those fast twitch muscle fibers. Uh, I might have a long interval in there, a few long intervals at a couple at a couple different moments in the in the training program. Mm-hmm. I would be implementing hill training in there most definitely because this so so many ultras actually have um, have a hill requirement. Yeah. Plus, it, that would be kind of a there's a strength endurance element that we want in there. Both that uh, you know benefit that you get both on the uphill climbing as well as the downhill. So I think those would be the key. Those would be the key elements in addition cool. to some moderate intensity pace pace work and lots of uh, lots of long distance work in there. Yeah, and that's sort of what we um, sort of you know adhere to to generally. Um, so. I want to ask you, what are the dangers? Like I've uh, just, you know, selfishly asking for personal reasons. Now, um, I've done obviously, you know, bloody long time of doing stupid amount of running. Um, And in the beginning, you know, just doing huge, huge mileage. And now I'm totally not into huge mileage. I'm into more the, you know, burying everything up and the five pillars we call them. So, you know, your strength training, your mobility, your your, your run sessions of varying types, um, your nutrition and your mental game as well. Um, but I've run into problems with burnout and adrenal exhaustion and um, the HPA axis, you know, in the gutter, basically cortisol. Not, well, I'm like at a stage now where the cortisol is just not, not producing at all. It's just like all day is mm-hmm. have um, and I think I've done too many uh, well long stuff and the the hit stuff as well. Is there a danger in doing too much um, overtraining, and can you come back from that? Very complicated uh, question. Yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> is there a way back for me <laughs> from the? <laughs> Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think the body always wants to get back and heal itself and return to homeostasis and balance, right? Mm. So, so, and I think you know the answer to the first question. You certainly can burn out doing too much, yep. too much hit, and that is uh, so. 
you may have seen the article that Phil Maftone and I wrote on the unhealthy athlete, and that's really around the whole, um, you know, burnout thing with... Uh, yeah, fit but unhealthy. But unhealthy, yeah. Mm. So it's made its rounds around, uh, rounds around the world, and, and yeah, that's one of the ones that... Yeah, I, I mean, I even saw that a lot in the high-performance sport context where there was just wow. too much intensity in certain programs, and we do see this, this burnout that actually occurs. And uh, yeah, it really, really, it's just it just requires a period of rest and requires a usually a um, well. Let me back up a bit and just say that you know, there's stress comes in many different forms, and it's often not just the high intensity uh, interval training that's contributing to that. A lot of times, it's a bunch of different stressors that are coming into play and creating a perfect storm ultimately. So we've got you know, nutrition can be a, a stress in itself if it's inappropriate for the individual. Um, a lack of sleep is a huge stressor. Uh, psychosocial stresses that we all experience through our human existence going yep. through life. So all of these things uh, create, and then add exercise into that as well. If any of those are creating too much of a stress overall, it affects what you mentioned, the uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the HPA axis, which is basically our integrator in the brain. Uh, between the nervous system and the endocrine system. And it, it, um, it's there to help protect us, at least it was, and now it can sabotage us, right? We create yeah. too many <laughs> stress hormones. And, and yeah, and then also we can see, uh, we can reach the point where it's, uh, you know, it's almost done a little bit too much and, and we're not able to return to, cre- to uh, you know, create the hormonal profile that we need to, uh, you know, have have uh, control our moods and, and these sorts of things, right? But yeah. at the end of the day, it requires rest and recovery. Um, one, of the, one of the little tricks that I like to use, or I, sometimes when that happens, is uh, floating. And I'm not sure if floating is taken off in New Zealand. It has oh, around the Flotation tanks? You're yeah, flotation about? tanks. Isolation yep. tanks is a great means of, um, of, of resetting and returning the body to homeostasis one i mean it's not like you're going to get there on one single uh float but it's like a, a series of floats uh can reset the sleep and then it can and then the body can kind of come back into rhythm you really need to get back into that circadian rhythm again and getting stress under control yeah so so what you're saying and it's something that we talk about a lot and now coaching is um yeah, you got a bucket of stress and it, you if you're sticking in mental stress work stress kid stress whatever um wrong foods and then your bucket starts to get full and then you start putting in training loads that um and when you're not a professional athlete you're just you know a busy executive or something uh with three kids then you're going to overfill the bucket and then you've got to tip over um, and that's when these sorts of things can uh, start to um, happen. And um, and on that point, we could get on to the heart rate variability in a moment. But, yeah, it is, it is quite a struggle. We're seeing a lot of, with the people that we're coaching, is we're, we coach a lot of, so not elite athletes, so, uh, as much as um, uh, probably 80% women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who are having hormonal changes as well as going through, you know, but trying to still stay at the top end of their of their game, wherever they're at. Um, and that can be quite a tricky uh, tightrope walk as well. Have you got any experience uh, or any advice for, for say, women um, approaching those 
you know, changes, menopausal years, perimenopause, um, in regards to their training, um, that can help them get through that period, if you like? You know, I don't, uh, look, uh, I don't have any great advice that's, uh, you know, but, but it, that doesn't really add on what I just kind of mentioned. Like, you've got to, those changes are going to be happening. That's a natural physiological occurrence can't get away from that and your management of those issues is going to relate to your own context and you're going to do the best you can but some of these strategies such as really checking in with your diet you know um you know potentially like, there's a lot of individuals that have they think they've got the diet right but maybe it could actually be better so yeah got leak that issues that's a real telltale sign that something's a little bit off you so get some help with that because that could be, you know, two things that are, that are kind of going uh, awry in the, in the diet uh, or in the, in the stressors. And then, you know, things like meditation, it's so much easier to say, but harder to do. But if people can find a meditation uh, practice that helps, that is, that is one, another way that you can kind of reset the HPA axis. Um, Almost forced meditation is this float, float tank kind of situation because it, 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 a lot of people can't um, have, they can't even imagine getting into one of these isolation t- um, tanks because they think be like they're just so claustrophobic and anxious about it. And that is, a, again, a telltale sign that there could be an issue there, right? If you can't do that, like that's, that's another, yeah, that, that anxiety might be elevated, stress might be elevated in, in that individual too. Yeah. So... And where do you start with this? I, you know, I don't know. You just have to take one step at a time, fix one little thing, make one step towards becoming, uh, you know, lowering that stress in your life. Yeah, um, I think that's totally. Don't answer the question too too well there because there's no, there's never a blanket solution for every individual. And uh, look, in, in my experience, the menopause um, process is very is quite variable it's, you know it's it's all it's weird on one morning and then it's, it's fine the next moment and and then yeah and then it's back yeah. so, I don't know. and being kind to yourself would probably be a good general rule and i'm not expecting the earth all the time of yourself um but yeah i think it, what the message and, and i'm a very big proponent of meditation of deep breathing exercises and um things like the wim hof method um, yep. All of those sort of areas that can help sort of stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system and calm the body down so that it is not completely in fight or flight all the time. Having said yeah. that, it's very hard. Can add, yeah. yeah, can I add one other, one other big one? And it's, you know, we're, we're both using it right now as we speak and so is the listener because they're listening to us likely on a, some sort of technology device, but it's technology is a real big elephant in the room too. That's a you know, like we haven't had that in the past. No. Uh, and that is another thing that really affects our, our stress levels is being glued, you know, to our to our phones and to our computers and our iPads and all these various different things. It's, you know, it's become integrated in a part of our life, but that's another big factor that we can, that can really make a difference. And that's probably why, you know, ultras are so appealing to people because yep. they'll leave their phone and leave their, leave a little bit of technology behind when they go, they can just get away from it for a certain amount of time. And if you're feeling that way, like I know, I know I do. So you probably, you know, this is probably the same. 
you know, there's there's uh, there's a little bit of magic that's that's probably within that whole, um, you know, uh, yeah, issue that we, we kind of need to appreciate. So last year I went on a big uh, a big paddle trip with the family, and it was in a place in British Columbia where there's no technology, and it's like uh, it's called it was called the Balleran Lakes. It's a series of you know, uh, 11 lakes and you're portaging through it. And there's just, there's no point in taking any technology because there's nothing out there. So you just, you're living and you're camping for that many days. And I just, you know, I can't tell you how incredible that was and the whole reset of the, of the HPA axis for me. I just like, you know, it's, it's back to nature and stuff. And, um, so doing more ultras. With <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that single focus. another big thing. Yeah. I think, I think that's something that I miss because um, I've stopped doing ultra marathons the last three years. I had a mum who got sick and I had to, you know, drop everything and, and rehabilitate her. Um, and I miss that singularity of thought and that, that, that those hours of clearing the mind every day and uh, that's something that, that really is missing, especially when you're, you know, like, like yourself running businesses and fully you know always high performance everything um and it can really be a load on the whole body that i think is actually worse than the load of ultra running <laughs> if i could go back to the simple days when all i had to worry about was the finish line <laughs> or getting to the finish line it was a whole lot simpler than all the stuff that we have typically in our life and our crazy world now have coming at us um on that point i wanted to start talking just briefly about um hrv Uh, heart rate variability and how you use this to judge what is it for a status because a lot of people still haven't really heard what heart rate variability is and how it works and how they can use it in their training can you talk a little bit about that sure so heart rate variability is what the word kind of describes so it's variation of the heartbeat and a lot of times when we, when we just start out and we just think of heart rate in itself, we think of it more or less like a clock or like a metronome and it just goes tick tock, tick tock. You know, if you're to, you know, listen to your heart, that's what you would think. But in actual fact, there's a lot of variation that's going on beat to beat. So it's like, it's actually going tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. And that variation, what, what scientists have, de- have discovered is that that variation in those beats actually means something. When it's more like the clock or the metronome and it's just, it's right on time, you're using what's called your sympathetic system or your fight or flight. Okay, so your stress would be high. Yep. And when it's really a lot more variable um, going all over the place, well, that's more associated with the parasympathetic system, the rest and digest system, being relaxed and recovered, like when you're sleeping. So uh, what, um, what's wound up happening now is there's, we've, we've gotten very innovative in our means of being able to get, get a hold of, the very, of this, this heart rate variability. And that's why people are hearing a lot more about this. So I certainly measure this in my own athletes and they can, because they can do it so simply now. And this was, uh, we, had, we had the honor of being a part of this innovation and development and, and validation of it at the AUT lab wow. in, in Millennium. And we verified this um, HRV for training app. And that, the HRV for training app actually uses the iPhone camera. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but basically you can measure um, 
you can measure your heart rate variability just using like the the phone, like a uh, phone camera. So you can actually use the, the camera nice. and you can actually like get a measure of your heart rate variability just on your, on your iPhone like that. Oh. So this is yeah, Marco, Marco Altini of HIV for training. And we verified this in AUT lab with, uh, against ECG, so standard ECG. He uses various different, you know, um, artificial intelligent means of, of just uh, establishing the, the HRV, and it's even better than using a polar chest strap, we discovered. That's incredible. So HRV training, so they can, people can get that in the app store and, and grab that? Yeah, get it, for, get it for, yeah. And there's also a coaching version too. So I use the coaching version. Mm-hmm. I have a bunch, all my athletes are on this, and you can just see how easy this is. So I, right or wrong, I do sleep with my, uh, my iPhone beside my bed, but I wake up in the morning, yeah, the very first thing. I, the very first thing I'll do is I'll take this measurement of the HRV, and uh, and and that just automatically logs onto the HRV for training, um, uh, I guess, server. And then th- your coach or yourself can actually look at that, and you can actually get your score. And uh, yeah, you don't actually look at what you know a single measure. You don't usually look at like a single measure. But you're looking at the uh, the trend in that measure over time, and that's very useful, especially if you know you're under a heavy training load or stresses are getting in the way. So all the stress stuff that we were talking about before, it can be quantified using the HRV for training, or at least it's in, with one marker, right? So yep. very highly useful. That's that's a really exciting. I mean, we use a, a very simple analog version, which is like a, a, a wellness check sheet that sort of gives people a rating of 1 to 10 on their hydration, their sleep, their niggles, their stress levels, all that sort of thing. But this is a much simpler way to just get that one figure. Um, but there is a little bit of um, – it, it, it isn't just saying, oh, today it's dropped, therefore I'm not healthy or something's going on. You do have to look at the trend lines and not read in too much into any single reading, isn't it? Um, so that's when you're seeing over three or four days that it's, there's something going on, that's when you get more – uh, maybe it's time to back off and have a have a bit of a recovery period before you go on to your next session. So that's definitely a super exciting app. I'll be downloading that today. <laughs> Everybody oh. go and grab that. It's tip, tip of the week, that one. Um, so, And this is something that's very simple that we can really measure if we're going into overtraining or getting sick or anything that's going on inside the body it's a very quick way of of giving us that measurement so that's that's super exciting um now i wanted to uh go on to your flow bottle (laughs) but we you have um uh designed uh the flow bottle which is like a slushy uh, and I, I, I said to Dr. Paul before I got on the, the recording, I wish I'd had that in Death Valley or in the Sahara when I was running. <laughs> um, so how does this, this work? And why is uh, – so thermoregulation is another area that you're an expert in. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So this has a cool story that, again, goes back to New Zealand. And um, So when I first arrived in New Zealand, I was coming from Australia. I'd just done my PhD and been a professor over in Australia, working a lot with the Australian Institute of Sport. And there were a couple of hot games that we were preparing for. I think one was Atlanta, another one was Athens. And um, yeah, and so pre-cooling was one of my areas that I did a lot of work on. So just figuring out how we could cool the body beforehand. Mm. And one of the first things that my, I guess, the leaders at HBSNZ said when I first arrived is, 
you know, do something innovative, Paul, and figure out, you know, make some, be creative and make us something um, that we, you know, our athletes can kind of use to, um, to win on the world stage. So put my head, you know, put my head on and, and uh, got to work. And, and I came up with this because I knew the power of ice slushy to cool us. I, from my work in Australia, I said, wouldn't it be cool if we could actually use ice slushy when we're exercising? I said, oh, perfect, easy. We'll just, um, we'll just get a water bottle and we'll, we'll put ice slushy in it. But there were no water bottles at the time that would allow for the expulsion of an ice slushy when you were exercising. Mm. Um, so that's when we went to the, uh, there's this innovation project with the engineers at the University of Canterbury down in Christchurch. So we got into their program, they took it on. And um, a bunch of fourth-year uh, engineering students um, made the flow bottle, which is basically, uh, you know, they figured out, the, they did all these various different experiments to figure out how they were going to design a bottle to be able to um, cause for the, the, um, the ice, to, ice slushy to kind of get out of that, keep it cold. And they came up with a prototype bottle. They did an amazing job. And then um, a company by the name of um, Procreate, so Graham Brewster, his company out of, out of Auckland, uh, North Shore, he and his team made a beautiful, what I believe is a beautiful design of a, a silicon version of this one. Um, oh. So, you know, silicon from your oven mitts and those sorts of things, yeah, yeah. but it kind of keeps it like it's solid, but it's still like you can kind of um, you know, push it to, uh, to allow for that slushy to come out. Yeah. And they made a beautiful design in terms of the nozzle. And, and now, now we have, uh, the, the flow bottle. So, um, yeah, it's being used by a number of different countries in the, the Olympics. You might've heard that the, the Tokyo games is just going to be absolutely yeah. ridiculous in terms of the heat. So it's already been used in the test event. We've seen some great, great photos. New Zealand team has been using that. So, uh, in, and, and that's been just absolutely awesome. Yep. And, uh, and, and yeah, the, um, so it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. So, um, it's available for anyone to use and especially your listeners, most who will be in New Zealand can, can, uh, can access that pretty easily through, um, through the flow bottle website and, uh, and actually, you know, um, hitting up procreate for some, um, some bottles oh i've got to get one so what is the website there so this is tip number two for the for today's show where do we get our, our flow bottle from what was the yes, uh, so it's, uh, it's a F -F -L -O -E bottle yep. so flow bottle so and flow, flow. F -F -L -O -E is like a play on words with like a, an ice flow which is but yeah like an ice an ice flow like a you know like a like an iceberg and stuff and they're, they're called like the little pieces that are breaking off and hanging out there in the Arctic, cool. the, uh, the flows of it. Yeah. So it's, yeah, a flow that, that's something that, that will be very beneficial on some of these hot races, especially hot, long running races. Um, how does ice, this is the last thing before we wrap up today. So I'm aware of your time. Um, um, how does, when you hit, put ice in your tummy, doesn't it, I've always heard it's not good, you know, and it will, will stop the digestion and cause trouble. Is that true? Or, or what's, what's the go there? No, it certainly wouldn't be through the cool temperatures. That can only kind of benefit. So we should actually leave with, with being very clear on the benefits and why ice slushy actually works from a cooling standpoint. So it works for a couple different reasons. First of all, it's almost like reverse of the sweating process. So when we sweat and our sweat is actually evaporated on our skins, it's the process of the evaporation. The actual 
state change from a liquid to a gas that elicits that energy release, heat energy. That's, so again, that's a, that's a very important uh, physics kind of principle that allows us to survive in, in that sweating. Um, but when you can't evaporate your sweat enough, like such as in places like Tokyo or Hawaii, yeah, humidity and yep. humidity, what are you going to do? Well, you can't really do too much about it, but you can, a little trick of course, is to work the opposite phase change. And you're, you're actually going from a, the same thing happens, except it happens on you when it's going from a, a solid to a liquid. So you're putting solid ice into your system and in order to melt that ice, it has to, the ice has to take heat energy away from your body. Wow. And it does that in the places that matter as well. And when you're ingesting it, it's cooling your neck and the carotid vessels that are going back up to your brain. And same with your central core. So you're getting it in just the right places that you need it. And yeah, I mean, all the science is on the website if people are interested. Yeah. And including all the research papers, it's well documented within the studies. Again, that's why I invented this thing because I was, you know, we did, we did eight years of research in a laboratory to, to kind of uncover a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it works, it works like a hot damn. Well, because yeah, one of the things that we did, say, in Death Valley or whether it was extreme temperatures, was always having ice, little ice bags that we had on our wrists and up here, a, a thing mm -hmm. around here. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, nobody had one of those back then. So, um Definitely something to, to watch out for. Now, Dr. Paul, you have a course, a uh, HIIT training course for any other you know, sports and conditioning uh, coaches out there who want to really dive deep into the top-end science. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that course and about the book that goes along with that um, and what you're doing now and how people can reach out to you. Yeah, for sure. So I am... So my main, I guess, main work is with HIT Science. Uh, so it's HIT, which is H-I-I-T science.com. Check it, check that out. And there's a course on there that the, the user can take. And uh, it, it'll teach you all these various different things. So for coaches, they'll find it very useful in terms of getting the prescription um, and you know, understanding how they can manipulate the sessions appropriately. Same with the book. So the book is published by Human Kinetics. It's a bestseller, and that's on Amazon. So uh, again, you can uh, you, you can reach that through the Hit Science website as well. The, yeah, links on everywhere. Yep. Yeah. And then otherwise, um, if you want to find out all the other different things that I'm doing, all my other different projects, I'm I'm at paullarson.com, and I'm a I'm an endurance coach to many of the top endurance athletes in the world, uh, at least in the sport of Ironman triathlon, and yeah, a bunch of yeah. other different. You're an amazing coach and at an amazing level at the top end of cutting edge science. I I, I hope I can do that course in the, in the course of the next year. I've got another couple of um, I've got to get through epigenetics training and a few other things, but I'd hope that I can get there because this would help take our athletes definitely to the next level as well and that would be very interesting for us so thank you for all this information today i think there's been some real gems of wisdom for our listeners that they can take away um and yeah everybody you've got to do your hit training no matter what sport you're in there is an application for this um and if you want to find out more if you want to dive deep into the research get that book uh, the science and application of hit training by dr paul larson and your colleague's name was um dr martin Bouchet. michael Bouchet. uh so you can grab that i'll put the uh the links in the show notes um any last words paul for um 
for anyone out there or anything that you would like to say as a last message to get across? Well, my, just my last message is that I miss, I miss you, New Zealand. I, yeah, <laughs> I just, uh, hello to all my uh, friends and family back in New Zealand. I, we, we are, we're a joint, uh, we spent enough time in there that we're actually a joint uh, uh, citizenship family. So wow. we, are, you know, we're, we have our uh, Kiwi heritage as well. And um, yeah, Come we'll back. definitely, Come we'll back. Def- we will be back one day. We love, we love it there. And thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.